Hey, welcome everybody to podcast number 63 uh, from Five Pin Universe. I'm your host, Kerry Kreitz. Um, like to bring up our host or our sponsor, sorry, for the month of May was allstarbowlingsales.com. You can use a couple codes, promo codes, 5PinU15 for the promo code to save 15% off your uh, your purchases on their website. Hey guys, we have the usuals, the Wiseman Twins and Adam Weber. And uh, just like to point out, uh, the shirts they're wearing is from our sponsor, All Star Bowling Sales. Um, we will be giving away four T-shirts to uh, people in the chat for this episode. So uh, we'll ask you a question partway through the podcast here. And uh, if you give us the right answer, we'll put you in the draw and we'll draw at the end of the podcast here. So without further ado, our guest this week, um, I'm sure people have seen it on our social media pages, is a two-time double crown winner. And... Uh, leader of the Saskatchewan Bowling School, one of the best bowling schools in Canada for sure, Mr. Tom Patterson. Howdy. Oh. Hello, yeah. Tom. Hi. So, Tom, thank you very much for uh, joining us on this uh, podcast. It's pretty crazy that we've reached 63 episodes and people are still listening. So uh, yeah. we're bringing some good content. We mostly do to the guests we bring on, and we can't thank you enough for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. It will be a memory that I will keep for as long as I'm breathing air. We <laughs> <laughs> laugh because I'm dying tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, Tom. Um, so our first topic, um, we sure everybody wants to talk about and hear you talk about. Um, you're obviously a three-time author. Uh, of three published books. I know you're working on a fourth one as we speak. And uh, you are running a prolific bowling school for five pin bowling in Saskatchewan for uh, quite a few years. Would you like to uh, just touch on the bowling school and how long it's been running and all the good stuff that's a part of it? Well, it's been, this would have been year 35, but uh, thank you to COVID, we're not running this year. There's too many obstacles to try and maneuver around. So we're looking forward to doing it next year. But what we will do is get into the different uh, smaller communities in the province and do some one day school type uh, bowling school things with uh, the youth of their communities. We'll do that. You know, you ask me, if you ask me why is the school successful, I think my best approach would be ask Dexter and Tim, because <clears throat> they may be old, <laughs> but they're <laughs> older, apparently. <laughs> so, Dexter and Tim, what do you remember about it? Uh, it, it was always phenomenal. A, it was um, something we always looked forward to all summer. Um, you get there, you may have thrown maybe a game or two before you get there, and then you, you bowl 100 games in a weekend. It, it was... Um, it's different from all the other schools, from my, from my understanding anyways, um, where it, it truly is a school. Um, you're committed to it. You spend hours upon hours working at your craft. Um, it, it's far less – it was far less camp-like than the other ones where, um, you know, you, you spend a couple hours working on the lanes and then you go into the classrooms and you spend times working on workshops in there. Um, I, I can't tell you – how beneficial um, 
the like the sports psychology classes were or the meditation classes which was you know honestly after three days of working your butt off that was our chance to nap in in, in the basement of eastview <laughs> um, but uh just you get to work with the best well some, some of the best players but definitely the best communicators and coaches in the game um and you get to uh make yourself comfortable around those people too um going through that school definitely prepares you for you know the adult ranks because you're used to being around them you know what you need to do for work ethic you know the weaknesses in your games you know your strengths of your games um and you have a ton of resources to help you through it so uh it was definitely probably one of the most beneficial things you could do as, as a an up-and-coming athlete in this game uh, i i'll be honest with you i was kind of uh little awestruck when we first went uh mom just said hey guys you're going to bowling school tom stevenson goes there you're going to go there and you're going to enjoy it so we went and uh i'll be honest with you i i uh, was on the first team i think i was with darren hibner and i think jimmy llewellyn was my coach right and it's just a kind of a small world how things work um i i found it like i think i went in there as a 203 average and then i finished going there with a 260 average right and, and I think it's all because of uh, what you started there, Tom, the, the people, the co pros, the everything, the coaches are all together as one, right? The, the, obviously, the, the work was great. Um, we learned a lot. Uh, obviously, the mental game work and everything else like that, we worked hard on the – not so much – we played a lot of games, a lot of – well, not a lot of games, but a lot of working on the lanes. And we also yeah. um, did a lot of great stuff afterwards. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think um, – I, I can – Speaking from Alberta standpoint, I don't think Alberta would be nearly as strong as it wasn't for your school, Tom. I mean, you look at how many people have went there and, and gone and been successful in the last 20 years. Uh, it's all because of you and because of your coaches. And I strongly, if anybody, I said, and I'm obviously I'm maybe out of line with this, but I say if you have a place to go, you go to Saskatoon and you, or you go to Regina now for this school. Like, um, I would never, ever, like, uh, ever ever tell anybody to go anywhere else and i just i really strongly feel that tom um and not just that i mean we, we've had friends for a lifetime i mean you look at the chat here uh you know we've known chelsea forever um john moans i think one of my first memories was he did a truffle shuffle in the middle of the lunch line right <laughs> when he was a little chunkier back in the day and you know what? <laughs> we had some really great times with that and uh I, I I wouldn't change it with the world. Like we loved it every summer, and uh, and it's all because of you, Tom. So you have a lot more credit than you ever, you know, you don't give you know, yourself. You know, I'm 30% of the answer of the equation. Yeah, percent by the people that are coming constantly. It's always been easy finding people to come to the school as staff members, as pros, and as instructors. And it's that combination of pros and instructors at the level that they are involved at in the game that truly makes a difference. So um, thank you. You're, you two are the best promotion the game's ever had. So thank you very much for what you say. And in support of the bowling school, we're really uh, thrilled to have your words. It's, it's helpful. Always, Tom. Well, of course. by the way, every school year for 35 years, once Alberta started coming, of the entries, Alberta represented 20 to 40% of the total entries each year. Mm -hmm. so That's awesome. We consider that some years we hit 100, 20% of you to 40% of you were 
Albertans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely one I wish I, I had went to back in the day. I uh, had a chance to make it to a couple uh, of the years for the Alberta one. And um, now hearing kind of the stories and everything about, uh, you know, the, the coaching, mainly the coaching styles and the pros that were out there. Uh, I'm sure it would have been much more beneficial to, to make that trip out there. Uh, not, not nothing against the Alberta schools. Uh, like they, they definitely did a, a lot of work there for, for the week. But, um, yeah, definitely wish I had a chance to make it out there with you there, Tom. You know what, Adam, the, the Alberta school or camp, they call it. Correct. Um, for years focused on recreation and mm -hmm. uh, then started to try and change and emulate more of what Saskatchewan did. Um, I think they came to a crossroads and decided not to do their bowling camp school um, thing at a provincial level anyway. Um, but I'm sure they've got a lot of talent in Alberta. I'm sure they'll come up with something that works well for them. Well, we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> we'll be we have another year to figure it out. So, <laughs> so Tom, I've, I've never asked you this, but how did this, this, the school come to be? Like, how did you decide you just wanted to get it over or start it, start it up? The irony of it all is in 1985, I was mm -hmm. invited to participate in the Alberta camp. <laughs> and I did. I went and I, I don't remember what I, I did, a classroom session only. And we went to the lanes for one hour. We had one hour of class time and one hour of lane time, and we were done for the day. Wow. And uh, that was the same the next day and the next day. And so when I went home, it was a no-brainer for me to tell Al Hunter that I felt we could do this back home, but we must do it different. And we call it a school because that's what it is. Kids understand what school means. It means learning. It's a very implied message, but it's very obvious. Um, and I think in part that's one big reason why we're successful because we're there to promote the sport, but we're there to help people become better at what they like doing, right? So yeah, kind of an easy step to make. But it was really easy getting better than what Alberta had. Mm -hmm. Really easy, unfortunately. And yet... Alberta, you know, uh, you can look at any Pro Tour tournament list and you can count needing um, both hands to find all the Alberta people in that top 10, you know, top 20. Always so many Alberta players. So uh, Alberta has a wealth of talent that could really make something work real well in their province. Um, I guess the movers and shakers in Alberta have made a decision about what that is, and they're more more privy to that than I am. But I know it doesn't involve me. <laughs> and, uh, hopefully, they'll figure something out that works for them. With that being said, Tom, um, to my recollection, and I don't follow a ton of this, but you've been a part of the BC Bowling School for the past couple of years as well, right? Yeah, we've done the... British Columbia School for 15 or 16 years. Oh, wow. And we did a Manitoba School as well for about a dozen years. And now Manitoba is 
has been attempting to resurrect their school uh, again, which is really good. I think Lauren Spruill is one of the people active on that and Jamie Newton. Uh, I don't know what their model looks like, but BC's is only three days rather than our four, but it's basically a carbon, carbon copy of what we do in Saskatchewan. And it's, it's filled with phenomenal <coughs> talent in terms of instructors and pros. It's really top drawer good stuff. Awesome. That's great. I think it's super important to get the right person at the head of it. And 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 truly, I think I think that was you. I mean, you you've uh, throughout your career, you've you've done so many things, and you've been around so many of those people that the connections you have made has made it obvious. I'm sure that that made it far easier for you to get those people on board with you. Um, I mean, as as long as we went to boys' school, that's that's where we learned. You know, we met Lynn and Bruce. And Gino, I mean, we were around them a little bit before, but those are really where you created those connections with those people. Um, and and truly, I think that's a big reason as to why we progress in the game is because because of those connections. So, um, well, thank you very much. Yeah. We'll do what we can to promote what I know that I can do, right? And teaching is one thing I know I can do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I can do it. Yeah. And not to sell yourself short there, Tom, you were uh, quite the avid bowler at the, the top of the sport for a long time. Um, obviously, a two-time double crown winner is uh, nothing to shake anything at. Um, right. could, you, could you go over some of those memories at being at the top of the game? Um, well, I wasn't ever at the top of the game, ever. Adam has been at the top of the game, and <laughs> Jim have been at the top of the game. Okay. Uh, I was never at the uh, top of the game in the terms of the hierarchy of the who's who of the bowling crowd. Um, however, I had the good fortune to be playing well on five different occasions. So that's <laughs> <laughs> well, not too many, is it, really, when you think of it? Um, I yeah. think I think uh, in an earlier podcast you talked to Greg Giglia He'd been to the Nationals 39 times. <laughs> He's got nine medals. I got five. Oh. That's an insane number, but five, five is nothing to shake a stick at. That's all right. That's more That's more opportunities than a lot of guys have had, too. So, so. And um, anyway, so I, I, I've never believed that I'm one of the top or the top or the best ever in my lifetime. I've just always just been focused on seeing how well I can execute my shot and how well I can go through all the preparation that I do uh, for my game. And then I'm either pleased as punch about how it turned out or I'm looking for ways to improve, really. There um, wasn't a championship I won that I was even in the remote sense thought that I was the best. <laughs> That's great. No. <laughs> anyway, I did enjoy those challenges. They were really nice. None of them stood out uh, more than the other, really. They were different uh, examples. And sometimes I won because I played well. And sometimes I won in spite of myself. So <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> so 
So, Tom, if, if you look back on double crown winners alone, you're only one of 19 people in the history of bowling to do that. So um, I, I think you're a little bit humble for yourself, and, I, uh, you know, that's why we love you, but uh, I still think you're one of the best of all time. So whether we, we can agree to disagree on it all we want. So, <laughs> um, but the, I, I remember like we used to watch, like, uh, one of the greatest moments of, well, when I was your stories when we were in bowling school, right? And uh, one of your stories, well, if you ever watch you live on TV, on CBCs and TSNs, was your how your mental prepared was, whether it was your headphones or are you going hard when you're playing rock band or whatever in your head? Um, <laughs> no, but like, uh, I think a lot of us can emulate or, or, um, or can contribute our mental game to you, right? So... Um, in those moments, was there something that you keyed on, or like, or helped out, helped you out when when you won all those uh, medals, or uh, those championships? Um, you know what? I believe, and I guess essentially this is um, something I pass on when I'm working with people. Yeah, I believe the more you rehearse in your head what it feels like to be successful. Mm-hmm. the more closely you can align yourself to that experience when you're actually there. And that doesn't matter what it is. It could be the sense of accomplishment you got when you got your first uh, four-bagger or five-bagger, all right? That sense of accomplishment that you got there is every bit as valid as any other accomplishment you have. And so if I've never been to a national championship or a provincial, but the best I've ever had is three strikes in a row. (laughs) If I keep rehearsing in my mind's eye what that three strikes in a row felt like, how captivating it was and how it was so energizing for myself, right? Or for that individual, you keep playing that over and over in your head, you will come into your competition feeling more relaxed and more at home. You've narrowed the gap, essentially, from preparation to play, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, when it comes to playing at the elite level, um, the model you might use to keep replicating is of when you've been successful. And I would guess, I'll put it out there, I'm, I'm quite confident that it doesn't matter which one of the three of you, four of you actually, sorry, Sorry, Gary. Gary's um, <laughs> done very well too. Uh, slap me in the face next time you see me. We'll remind him later. No, we? no, that was great. Yeah, it's <laughs> fair. It's fair. Anyway, whatever that that image is you have, the more you relive that experience in your mind's eye, the closer you come to replicating it. To come, you know, seeing it come to fruition. So um, it can become almost normal to feel that way uh, if you keep playing it over in your head. And you don't have to be cocky or arrogant or anything like that. You don't have to feel invincible about it. It's, it's just you reliving that successful experience, right? And if you do that, then a lot of the jitters that you may think you have because of an event falls to the side because you've been spending all of this preparation, part of that preparation, in 
focusing on all the things you can control, right? Not one of those thoughts about how wonderful it felt or about things outside of your control. So the goal, and I believe Mr. Howell said that in his earlier podcast, um, the goal is always to be focused on the things you can control. Found it quite amazing listening to Mr. Howell when he is the ultimate score watcher. You have tunnel vision, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And know that is true of all people that believe they are score watchers. They've learned to be able to balance that where once they get on the lane, it is just them, the ball, and the pins. Um, But that's a more complicated process than practicing ignoring the score and ignoring the opposition, right? Keeping your mind focused within the things you can control. Knowing all the well, all the while we're human and we get thoughts running through our head, but that doesn't mean we have to pay it any attention. We can just let those thoughts run through us without paying any attention, much like watching um, a river run and, and you have a little paper boat on it, maybe with each little hurdle or distraction and you allow it to just float down the river and you just ignore it. If you feed something and give it attention, it sticks around. But if you just passively ignore it and let it go by, you know, it's a natural thing. It's natural to be distracted. It's natural to feel nervous, right? So it makes no sense to fight that. Enjoy that and bring yourself back to focusing on the things that you can control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think I'll shut up now. (laughs) No, no, that's awesome. Great. I don't know if you could see the the live comments uh, from Facebook right now, but uh, everyone's quite happy with your response. There is a, uh, a fantastic yeah. response. Um, um, there, w- there was one specific question I do want to hit on here. Everybody's asking about your favorite memories of the bowling school and stuff like that, but we want to bring up a specific one from a, a past guest. It's uh, Mr. Scotty Barber is asking um, about the song Pressure. It's one of his favorite memories when he went to bowling school as a kid. Do you want to uh, delve a little bit deeper into this memory? Pressure. <laughs> you know what? In 1983, uh, when were you born, Carrie? 83. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember the last time I won a singles championship was in 2008. And two years later, I hung up my shoes. However, I remember sitting at that head table and not a single person at that head table other than the administrators were born <laughs> when I won my first championship. <laughs> I felt pretty old. <laughs> I don't even remember your question. Oh yeah, pressure. <laughs> like, now you're showing your age. Anyway, um, in 1983, I, I was the first person to win a team, a men's team, and the singles crown at the same time. The only reason I was the first one is because it's the first year they allowed that to happen. <laughs> you know, and there are some years where they've allowed that to happen and other years when they haven't. So it's really not a big deal. But ever, anyway, I was also the first person to ever go on national television with what was then called the Walkman. 
which is basically, you know, listening to music. Mm -hmm. I was the first one to do that. I'd used music to help me focus. When I execute, when I'm playing in a tournament, I know what it feels like in terms of my execution, what my execution feels like, right? As you all do as well, you know what it feels like to throw a well-thrown ball. So I have that feeling ingrained and running through my head. But sometimes I get a little distracted because I'm normal. Well, <laughs> in some ways, normal anyway. <laughs> and my Walkman was there, if I needed it, to just help me refocus. Anyway, the gentleman I was playing, uh, I believe his name is Hein. Uh I started out with two headpins, and I put my Walkman set on, my headset on, and the song I was listening to was uh, Pressure by Billy Joel. All of my training uh, back when I competed, I did a lot of exercising, and one of the things was cardio running. And when I was in my 20s, 1983, um, I would run four or five miles a day, and I'd have my selected music just like you do. And the song that always came back to me was Pressure. And I used that song kind of as my go-to song when I got distracted. And so I plugged it on my head, and then I started making these god-awful gestures, which I had no idea I was doing. And it was so embarrassing when I saw it on TV. Oh, <laughs> oh Jesus, it was so embarrassing. However, it served its purpose. It brought me back. I took them off and went about doing my bowling, right? It did its job. Um, shortly after, a few years later, they disallowed the use of headsets on the lanes. So maybe they saw what they saw and said, oh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, found it maybe. I don't know. Anyway, that's the story of pressure. Thank you very much, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> First time I've talked about that. <laughs> um, I just like to remind everybody that's uh, listening to this live podcast right now. We are going to be giving away four All Star Bowling Sale T-shirts. So uh, if you want to be entered into a draw, please become part of the chat. Type in. It doesn't matter if you're on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, we'll add you to the list as you type in. Um, and it's not for every comment you make. You only get in once. So make your comment worthwhile and it might get put up in on the screen. Um, so, Tom, let's let's keep building on um, this idea that you're you're giving back and you're running these schools and helping out the youth into the, the programs. What do you feel um, is the next step for um, the newer associations like the WCBT and um, even Five Pin Universe? In what ways would you like to see these associations help out or um, help grow the youth? Um, because we all know um, youth is the future of the sport. Well, your WCBT has really done a phenomenal job. I know, Gary, you've given me a lot of data to use when I do finally sit down and write a letter to TSN and CBC. Um, 
And you, you've done a really good job. I, I know that I, I shared with you uh, the notion that you need to rebrand yourself um, because it reminds me much like years and years ago when there was a Western Canadian championship and then a Canadian championship, essentially pitting West against East. Mm -hmm. I did some research um, tapping the shoulders of four or five people from Ontario to get their understanding of what's going on in, in Ontario. And there are some movers and shakers there that are working at developing the same concept that you have. Yep. However, your concept is more solid and it's got more stuff there. There's a more of a gel to what you're offering here for the competitors. And that's why you draw as well as you do from Ontario. We just, there's just a better package out West. If you're interested in a pro tour and the competition that comes with it, the place to be is out West. And in particular, most often in Alberta, but Manitoba is going to get on board again, right? We've got yep. Regina one still. So there's lots of opportunity, far more opportunity than what Ontario has. I believe it would be good to rebrand you with some, could be a neutral name, but something that people don't necessarily all make the assumption that this is just a Western Canadian thing, right? Um, yeah. I think your place in the scheme of things is to continue developing the bowling that you've got. I listened to Adam's uh, podcast. Uh, Adam, you talked about what the plan was going forward for this in 2019, basically, right? In September? Am I right, Adam? For, for, for my personal year plan? No, no, just in terms of the tour. Oh, yes, uh, I believe, uh, John. yeah, Mark Johnson. Oh, okay, sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and the package is really solid, right? There's a lot of work that goes into making that work, and I think you're just really on the right track. Carrie, all the podcasts you have, uh, I have no idea what the viewership is for your podcasts, but every time I go on, there's a list of other players wanting to tune in and listen in, right? That says volumes to the initiative that you're taking. So I believe your generation, Carrie, and the people that are here with us tonight as well, they're really the flag bearers for what lies ahead. Um, I do have a concern in terms of the coaching end of things. Uh, and that is that I've written about it in my book. It's a kind of a sneak preview, I guess. <laughs> Exclusives. Yeah. It's controversial, though. That's what we're all about. That's what we're all about. It's all good. Yeah. Because I believe when they essentially wanted to redo the level one and level two and make community coach and enter the competition. Um, I don't clearly remember all the motivation behind that, 
I believe it was to make a better package. In some respects, there's things in those packages that were not in the previous packages in terms of coaching certification and that sort of stuff. However, I believe it's fallen short on the actual online training for coaches, um, the detection and correction stuff. And the other thing that I feel is really shooting people in the foot here in terms of uh, people that take the programs and want to become coaches is the notion that they can become a community coach and then six months later, they can take the intro to competition. And then they can walk away feeling that I know everything now <laughs> because ultimately that's as far as it goes in the national game, right? Yeah. We don't have a tier three. And I'm not suggesting we need a tier three. I suggest what we need is to assure that the people that take the community coach program, they spend five years working the craft, honing their skills as an instructor, right? And then go into the intro to competition because when you go into the intro to competition after five years of experience instructing and coaching, not just as a player, but instructing. Part of why coaching is devalued is because the elite athletes out there, not enough of them are out there coaching. They're just bowling on the tour is a selfish pursuit, you know? Um, to give back to the game, to the youth, to other recreational level players is important. Anyway, I believe this coaching program they have, you get too quick onto going into the intro to comp without the stuff you can learn through sheer experience, right? If the athletes that are on pro tour and choose to go and get their certification, ultimately they may get chosen to coach. They may but only if they don't make a team. So the chances of them becoming a coach are probably pretty slim. <laughs> if they don't get involved in actually coaching, then the surveys such as the coaching survey that I did in April, which had 198 participants, which I believe on a national level is tremendous. Because yeah. um, it was right across the province. Every province was involved, some more than others, but that's not, that's, Irregardless of anything, 198 responses. The clear reality from that survey, that there were lots of clear realities from that survey, but one of them that really stings is that they devalue the role of the coach. I believe they devalue the role of the coach because they're not involved in being a coach enough to understand the intricacies. I believe that the, for instance, the age group that was 35 to 44 years of age, which gentlemen you probably all fall into now or very soon. <laughs> How old are you? Mm -hmm. Tim, how old are you? 32. All right. Hey, Dexter, how old are you? I, I'm also 32. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, how old are you? Uh, I turn 40 next month. All right. Wow. Very? Wow. Yeah, 37. I'm in that group. I believe those people that are in that 
age range, right? They're, it's kind of like the prime of their career. If you look at all the national champions that we've had, the vast majority of national champions in singles and national champions or pro tour champions, right, top fours, a lot of those people are 35 to 44. They're getting back selfish reward. Good. I don't begrudge that at all. However, as long as they're not involved in coaching, then what can they say about the value of coaching? Their experiences said, geez, you know, I'm 35 and 44. I've, I've won nine nationals. I'm a two-time Canadian singles champion already. I've won four cash events, uh, whatever, right? I'm making 10 grand a year easily off of my bowling. What help do I need? And so they consequently don't see the true value in having a coach. That's a pretty narrow-sighted view. If you want to look at professional sports as a role, as a whole, I'm pretty sure Michael Jackson wanted Phil Jackson on the bench, right? If you watched his series, Michael Jordan. Know, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Can you imagine Michael Jordan? Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. <laughs> the most graceful basketball player ever. Yeah. Michael Jackson, the greatest basketball player ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that white glove. Anyway, Michael Jordan, right? One of the best, if not the best, basketball player ever. He wanted Phil Jackson on his bench. And when that didn't happen, he was an unhappy camper. He knew the value of having Phil Jackson there. If you look at golf, all the professionals that are out there, they all have sports psychologists and coaches with them. The people that are truly professional in their sport, they understand the value of coaches and they embrace that. Mm -hmm. Five pin is like curling. Curling, their prize fund is no different than five pin. And in fact, on an individual basis, if you take the prize fund for curlings, uh, it's always divided by four or five people. It works out to being the same as what the tour is. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my point, we need everybody to be involved in coaching, to value the coaching so that we can understand the dynamics of what coaches can bring to the table. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the problems to go back, okay, one of the problems is too, the advancement in the coaching is too quick. It's ridiculous. I go, I do both of these programs. I've only failed one person, but I will fail people if they're not doing their, if they don't know their stuff, right? And a big part of you knowing your stuff is how you communicate with people and knowing the game. Yeah. So in my book, I've listed a number of ways that a coach can go about improving their knowledge, right? But ultimately, we need everybody on board. We need uh, more of that 
35 to 44 age group on board. Mm -hmm. uh, however, of the age group, they did not value anything very highly, um, which kind of struck me rather humorous because in the classroom setting, my, the grade sevens and eights, they don't value much highly either. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I have all the respect in the world for the talent that it takes to be good at the game and to play at a consistent level. And I have all the respect in the world for the coaches that want to get out and have an opportunity. Uh, but first, we have to get them to understand they need to get the basics, the training and the expertise. And it doesn't come just from taking a course and then taking another one six months later and thinking they should be able to coach a Tim or a Dexter or a Carrie or an Adam or a Gino. All right. It just, not something that should be happening. They need to build up their expertise. I think I should shut up on the topic for now. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's great information. Um, like I, I kind of wanted you to expand on um, like the WCBT portion a little bit. Obviously, coaching is not such a huge part of that. Um, yeah. Hope we're, we were talking about this, I think, the last podcast or even the podcast before um, of coaches standing behind these pro players and maybe being an influence on it. Um, but the WCBT, WCBT has expanded on um, providing pro clinics or mentorship clinics to help with the youth programs and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think they're, we're trying to give a little bit back that way because, like yeah. you said, Tom, a lot of the pro players are selfish. They're there for the money. Um, but it is nice to give back and hopefully help out some of these. Uh, and one way of doing that would be simply having a pro-am at each tournament. You imagine the influence that can have on you just being a gentleman, the women and the gentlemen that go and play in these tournaments now. I'm not sure what the percentage is, but the vast majority of them appear to be well-dressed and wearing style and bowling shirts. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's becoming more and more, I would say, I don't know, maybe not on the qualifying, but on the Sunday, yeah. 80, 80 percent of the players are wearing tour shirts. They're trying to look nice. They're not playing yeah. in wife beat or shorts or in shorts, not basketball shorts. I guess well, I should you say. have a bunch of young people that have an opportunity on a Friday to come and have the experience of bowling with you, just bowling with you. That does the very same thing that Dexter and Tim talked about coming to the bowling school and getting to know Gino and Bruce and Lynn better, right? Does the very same thing. And that means uh, the chances of them wanting to follow you again. I remember as a kid following uh, the elite of our game in, in Saskatoon as a 10-year-old. I'd want to go and watch their qualifying rounds, right? And I remember being so excited when I was 13 and, and Don Wilson asked me if I wanted to play on his team in the men's league. And to me, Don Wilson was the, he and Larry Tyson were the best bowlers in our city and province probably. And that was just like that. 
I was on cloud nine when that happened. And those kids that want to compete in, in the game or enjoy the game, if they have the opportunity to rub a shoulder with a pro that looks like a pro, acts like a pro, that is the best advertising you can do. So um, I think, Kerry, to talk as long as Lynn does is hard. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I think, Kerry, if you were able to put together pro-ams where these kids could rub shoulders with you, great. I believe that one-on-one -on -one connection is good use of your time and your influence. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we, we have been with the WCBT. We have been in the last couple of years. Um, it's not really a pro-am, but we have been doing like a, a youth seminar. Yeah, um, you know what, I've seen what you've done in, I guess, Heritage Lanes, right? Yeah, and it, it's super informal. Um, I, I'm sure we could expand on it, but it is, you know, when you're talking about following those people. I remember uh, doing that with uh, a couple of little guys from Red Deer who actually don't even bowl in YBC. Um, their parent or their dad used to bowl in YBC, but they came in. Uh, they did kids bowl free in the summer. They came in for the youth clinic. Um, we had a little competition with them, and then they they stuck around. Uh, they they stuck around and they they watched all my matches to you know just because they were excited and you know they they made new friends and they, yeah you're you're absolutely right. Just making those connections can make a world of difference for sure. <laughs> yeah, Le Lenny would like us to replace the consolation with uh, another event, but uh, that's for another discussion, I'm sure. <laughs> Lenny, replace Constellation with anything or just eliminate it. Oh. Yikes. It says the top of the tour. Yeah. Uh, let, let's think about the middle guys here, you guys. Yeah. The guys that miss every second cut. Those are the guys you're trying to target here. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> I think Nathan Cooper has a, a, good, uh, a good comment in here, too, is uh, – Start adult bowling school to teach coaches, and that, I think that's something that we really miss. I mean, the, having the the coaching clinics to you know learn, you know, to get your certification is one thing, but um, I think having uh, having that as a resource to you know further expand coaches' knowledge would be fantastic. No, but BC has done that. When I come out uh, in July, they have run adult schools. Uh, the day before the bowling school for kids. Uh, typically, um, we would have 20 to 30 people come out for it. That's awesome. But it is a good idea, Nathan. Yep, absolutely. Um, don't don't uh, put all your investment in youth alone. Uh, playing, helping out anybody is work. Well, I think, Tom, I think I, I could be wrong, but uh... – I think what Nathan is saying is to have, you know, a clinic to teach these coaches further in depth into the game. Um, not, not so much to like, you know, um, expand their own game, but to expand the knowledge of the game so that they can coach better as well. Yeah. Um, good ideas. Yeah. I could tell you if some of those coaches, um, they don't have to play one of these events, the pro tour events, but if they showed up and watched a qualifying shift, or if they watched a Sunday, they would get a ton of information. Absolutely. They're, 
Yeah. It's the best players. They're putting their own money on the line to win money. Yeah. You're, you're going to see the best competition there is. And it only will help people to learn other people's games. They're, you know what, Carrie? That's point number four in my book. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, no, the, the idea of, of simply coming to silently observe, right? Learn by observing. Um, it works really well. It works well as an athlete. I can remember, I used to play tennis a lot when I was a kid. And I remember watching the stars of the year then. And I'd phone up my best friend, Tony, and said, let's go play tennis. And we'd both be so much sharper <laughs> just through osmosis of watching, right? And the same would hold true of, of the coaches if they would come out and watch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Watch with a purpose. Don't just watch yeah. with a beer in your hand to, you know, socialize and visit. Come and watch with a purpose. Yeah. yeah. Agree. Totally agree. So um, we'll we'll segue into our next uh, segment here. Uh, Mr. Weber would love to ask you our special guest <laughs> questions. Um, so maybe uh, get ready because you're probably going to be talking just as long as you've already been talking. <laughs> uh, these are pretty easy, Tom. Uh, growing up, uh, who's your uh, bowling uh, idol? Well, you know what? As as a um, within the city of Saskatoon, my favorite two people to watch were Larry Tyson and. Don Wilson and uh, uh, a couple of women by the name of Barb Phelps, Nan Swatsky, and Shirley Quayle. So those were my top five picks in terms of watching men uh, and women bowling in our community. However, on a com competitive level, as I was developing my competitive skills, there were two people I emulated. One was a 10-pinner by the name of Earl Anthony. And the other was a tennis player by the name of Bjorn Borg. I really loved the way they carried themselves. I loved the way they were so consistent. Anthony, I could learn a lot just by watching him throw, how smooth he was. Um, and Borg for his, and Anthony were both mentally, obviously very tough because they were both champions of their sport for many years. But they had a really strong head game that that espoused calmness. And that was something I had to work. Uh, I know Lynn talked about him having to work on calmness, right? To find out who he was as an individual. Um, but that was something that was really important for me to try and um, corral all my little demons that I had and um, try and find a way of making more productive use of them. So, Certainly makes the the top athletes top athletes it is being able to find that calmness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you can find it without having to be already a champion. You mm -hmm. don't have to do it through experience only. Um, the the shot that you throw when you were nine years old and got a strike. What? Let's let's roll that back. Let me self correct that. <laughs> Once your body has the physical ability to throw a ball without um, it being a problem because the ball is too heavy, right? Or your coordination isn't there. 
So let's take the 16-year-old, the 15-year-old, right? Strike the 15-year-old throws and the strike the 15-year-old that is now 25 throws, probably not a lot different. So they can rehearse what that is and narrow the gap quicker than they actually think. Right? You don't have to yeah. wait and just experience to teach you how to do these things. But, okay, I'm done. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a phenomenal answer. I, I, I think we're all just kind of in tune just listening because uh, your, your answer is incredible, Tom. Um, when you're playing at uh, probably your, your peak, uh, did you have a favorite event? No. <laughs> all events? And it didn't matter. <laughs> Everything that I chose, I always had a five-year plan. And I believed if I, and I dedicated myself to that five-year plan. Typically, that five-year plan came to fruition well before the five years. All right? Didn't take five years to, to come to those goals. But I had a five-year plan. And... I thought everything I entered as a job. And with that job was a business plan. And I was going to do X, Y, Z along the way, right? I had my measuring sticks uh, to tell me how I was doing and to monitor it. And, you know, I wasn't nearly as prolific as, as um, a lot of the players out there. However... I could leave the tournament knowing that I'd learn stuff and not beat myself up over it, right? Um, beating yourself up over the fact that you didn't win is stupid. If you're beating yourself up because you didn't win or because you screwed up a match, all right? If you're beating yourself up for that, maybe You've got the whole idea of what competition is, essentially just a test, nothing more, nothing less. Maybe you've got that out of perspective somehow. And uh, when we do get things out of perspective, gentlemen, I believe there's uh, some real basic reasons. One, it's either, and this comes from a guy by the name of William Glaser, who wrote Choice Theory, which is really old textbook stuff that classroom teachers learned about in the 80s, but essentially power, love and belonging, which is about fitting in, fun, which is fairly straightforward for us. Fun is also enjoyment, the enjoyment of the challenge, and autonomy, having choice, right? So when you're beating yourself up, I believe it would be a good lesson to look at what is the motivation behind that? Where is your motive? And I believe that it will be connected to one of those four areas, and you simply got it out of perspective. It's just simply a test. There's, you, you can't see it as a pass or fail, right? If you see it as a pass or, pass or fail, you're going to come back next year wanting it more, wanting it more. But if you start off weak, you're going to beat yourself up some more. If you start out well, good, it's going to go, right? But it's, it's like score watchers who tell me they like to watch the score because they love the pressure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Make it more like you. That's 
good idea. Make it more complicated for yourself. I'm pretty sure you had no interest at all in competing and winning. So by all means, make it more complicated. Watch the score. <laughs> get into it and figure out the difference, okay? Because that's going to help you so much. <laughs> God. Anyway, <laughs> how do you feel? Yeah. <laughs> your job is to focus on the things within your control. Part of your business plan, and every time you think of any successful moment you've had and make a list of the things you remember of them, I'm willing to wager that the vast majority of things you put on that list are things within your control. And therefore, I rest my case, that's where your mind should be. So if you're berating yourself because of what you've done, I'm saying berated, not being disappointed. Sure, be disappointed. You know, you didn't play at the level you wanted to. You lost. Maybe you lost because you threw poorly. Maybe you lost because Adam threw a 800 double at you. I don't know. But the reality is, if you beat yourself up for it, it's probably because you had it out of perspective. You weren't focusing on your business plan, the things within your control. Okay, I'm shutting up again. <laughs> um, Tom, Tom, so I do want to interject here because I'm going to get beat up by uh, the comments here later because I was telling Lynn all last week to keep the story short and uh, <laughs> we weren't supposed to pump his tires too much and here we've been pumping your tires the whole time. You didn't quite answer the question, what is your favorite tournament? But <laughs> mine no, is fine. Yeah. None is fine, and uh, we'll move on to the next question. I will say this I played in more masters than open because I could not afford to do both, and because as a teacher, it was easier to compete in a masters than it was in an open because of the date. Time-wise. Yeah. Provincial opens were always going to be me having to take time off. So if you do the math back then, it would cost me about $1,000 to play in the open above and beyond the entry fees, right? Because mm -hmm. I would lose wages yeah. as well. And yeah. so it ultimately became that the cheaper of the two were always the masters. So I occasionally went in the open. I went in the open a lot when I before I went into teaching. I went in the open every year, but once I found teaching, then it was uh, it was really just a requirement. <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory? Maybe that'll narrow it down for us. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of memories. <laughs> that's good. That's good for your age. <laughs> uh, I have a. Uh, I have the memory of 83 winning. I have the memory of 85 winning the, the, uh, I have a memory in 19, I think it was 78. I played Wayne Davies in the final in the master singles. And, uh, he beat me convincingly, but going in, I knew he was going to beat me. So obviously I lost. Um, I have a memory. There's somebody of, at your door here, Tom. Oh, <laughs> you got a note. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> do they allow note passing in the classrooms? Yeah, especially in the paper boats. Anyway, um, I have a memory of 83 
with my Walkman more than anything and mm -hmm. embarrassed about it. Uh, I have a memory of winning 85 uh, master singles and having to beat uh, Don Betts on my way up the ladder. I have no idea what the score was, but I remember I had to beat him. And apparently he's a pretty good bowler. <laughs> um, I have a memory of 2001 winning the Masters again in my hometown. And I won in spite of myself that year because I didn't play that didn't I played well in the qualifying, but uh, I didn't win. Or mm -hmm. I, mean, I won. I won in 2001, but uh, with low scores. Um, and I remember Walter Heaney giving me heck because uh, I didn't play well. <laughs> Sounds like a Walter thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Walter. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I remember uh, – oh, what else? <laughs> I remember CBC um, playing in 84. The very first year of CBC, they seeded the singles champions into it. And I remember winning my first match against Phil Foley, who I think he and Kevin O'Leary are two gems from Newfoundland mm -hmm. of my age who are really outstanding, fine young people at the time. Old people now. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Phil had just finished recovering from cancer. And he was there, and he played phenomenally well. And he had me. But unfortunately, that one corner pin stood. And um, it changed the fate of me winning. And then I knew the next match, I was playing John Zivick, John Zivick from Regina. And I knew I was going to lose because I thought he was better than me. You see, I never, ever thought I was better than everybody. I always thought everybody was better than me. Bit of a complex. Um, anyway, I remember playing in that CBC in 2004 and leaving that event, wanting to make sure that I made it back there by qualifying the way you're supposed to, because they changed the qualifying line. And when you talk about motivation, fitting in, I wanted to be able to qualify the way I believed everyone else was doing it. I wanted to be able to show my peers that I could qualify the way they had to and not just be seated into a show. It took me seven years before I figured out how to put that on the shelf and leave it alone. I remember going to BC for a national championship and thinking um, that's all I was there for. And it turns out I got a, a recognition award from the Masters that particular year for my contributions to the sport and my family being there. I remember how much I cried. I almost cried as much at that as I did at my wedding. Do you know, I cried at my wedding so much <laughs> that my best man leaned over at me, leaned over to me and said, Tom, are you okay? <laughs> and my, my <laughs> brother-in-law who can bench press 400 pounds said, well, do you want me to take him out of here? <laughs> <laughs> I remember those things. Next question. Good. <laughs> hey, Tom, I actually wanted to touch base a little bit on one thing you mentioned in that uh, 
that one is uh, just kind of your, your, your business plan going into an event. Um, in your personal opinion of, of basically all things that make up a, a competitive player, um, zero to 100, how important is goal setting and mental uh, preparedness uh, going into an event? Um, obviously, it's important. I think a lot of the goal setting that people do tends not to include writing it down. I think if you write down your, your goals and you journal your, your time competing, I think it can only work well for you. Um, I used to journal all the time. I got, and, and I would use, the words I would use were not big or complicated or anything, but they were so clear and concise in my mind that seven years later, I could look at that same sheet again and bring back those memories and learn what I had learned from that to apply it to what I was doing next. And it, that was part of goal setting. But my goal setting is about, yes, it's about results-oriented stuff, but it's also about what am I going to do to get to that play, right? What are some of the things that I'm going to do to give myself the best opportunity to be successful? And there's far more of those process or performance-like goals that I had in my practice sessions as much as anything else, right? We do not have to dwell on the fact that we want to win something. That's just a given. If you've entered an event, you want to win. So, end of story. Focus on the find the things you can control, right? So, my business plan, yes, goal setting, but goals are about process, right? It's about the how-to stuff. It's about the feeling of being in control, the feeling of um, ignoring your score, ignoring your opposition, the feeling of being in control and being able to bowl your best. And what that feeling, I think, is the first thing I said on the show, right? Carrying yep. that image in your head of what that feels like. You said some other part to that question. I can't remember what it was. Though. Well, no, I was just wondering if you could put a like a percentage of how important that is in, in the overall scheme. I, I'm sure a number of us have always heard, you know, as you get a bit older and you're starting to play, you know, it's it's 80% mental and 20% uh, physical. Or uh, once you get to, to, to elite status, it, it's 90-10 type, type thing, right? But nobody really truly understands what that means. Well, I think, I think your motivation is more important than your goal. You can have 100 goals, but if you're not motivated for them, you're not going to be successful. The psychology of goal setting is recognizing the power of your motivation, your desire, your drive, right? If you have a passion for what you're doing, you will put in the time to gain that. Unless, now I say that, understanding that the game of five pin is pretty simple. When you compare it to other sports, mm -hmm. five pin is pretty simple. It's not a complicated game. And rare are the people that don't have to put it much time in. If you do research and reading in terms of the something called the 10,000-hour rule, which is basically you getting to the peak of your skill set, we all get there. Uh, my understanding from doing the math, that works out to you putting in, on average, 2.9 hours a week practicing. A day, sorry, a day, or 19 hours a week. 
for 10 years. So in a 10-year time, can you say that you have put in 19 hours a week on average? I did the math for myself. And right around age 28 to 35, I put in easily that period, amount of time practicing. And you can count in league play, but it is the time you're on the lane. And the time you're on the lane is not two hours. <laughs> Your league is two hours, but you're actually on the lane maybe half of that, right? Or maybe not even that. Yeah. So I did the math for myself to figure out, well, where was I on that? And somewhere between 28 and 32, I put in my 10 grand. That's and that And that really equated to probably my peak in terms of the championships I won in singles. And on the tour, the events, I, I won the Heritage Classic before it was called the Heritage Classic. <laughs> anyway, um, or the Kelowna Ogopogo, which great that Ken Norris won. Ken Norris used to do so well at that tournament. Anyway. We, we do have a, a question here from uh, the chat. So Nathan Cooper chime in again. Um, a lot of new bowlers, specifically youth, seem to throw the ball a lot harder now because of the strings. Fireballers versus finesse. Who, in your opinion, is more successful? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Who's more successful? But I do know that the proprietor worked at trying to make the strike zone a little more amenable, a little more favorable for the recreational player. And so they came out with the base, right? That goes underneath, I don't know what they call it, but the plate you put underneath it. And I think it did a lot for helping the recreational level player get more strikes. I think it also obviously rubbed off on the uh, experts in the game as well. So um, the technology of whether you have 17 inch, what are they? 17 centers, 17 centers, yeah. Yeah, whether you bring the back stop up closer, et cetera. I'm not in favor of bringing the back stop up. Why do you need kickbacks? Exactly. If you've got a corner pin, pick the corner pin. Yeah. Come on. It's, it's along the way of development, the, the, the bowlers that are in the 200 to 240 range, if they choose to start practicing or paying more attention, being more productive, about how they use their time, there's going to be a period of frustration for them because they're going to recognize they're hitting the middle more, but they're also getting head pins more. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a trade-off. However, if you're putting in your time productively and practicing, you're getting your spares more frequently than you were before, and you're getting higher counts on hitting the middle more often. So there is payoff, but those that are in the 200 to 240 range, they tend sometimes to get distracted by the fact that I'm punching. What's wrong with my game? I'm punching. I'm punching because you're on the middle. Except none of them say, what's wrong with my game? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's yeah. wrong with your house? <laughs> yeah. I used to go to bowling centers. I, I still do. And I, I might get kicked by some of my comrades in Saskatoon. But I'll go to the bowling center and see these people com complain, oh, that was a good ball. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. You had no follow-through. 
you rushed. The first ball you got out 12 inches, the second ball you got out five inches, and you rushed each time. And you fell over sideways and you ran away from the pin, the foul line without holding a follow through. No, you did not throw a good ball. No, you got four pins over. Congratulations, you lucky duck. Now, <laughs> no, but anyway, I would I would go into um, at the time uh, the bowling pin house, and I would watch. I averaged 302 in that center. I didn't average 302 in that center because I was good. I, I averaged 302 in that center because it didn't matter where you hit it. <laughs> you were going to knock over at least four pins. Mm. You know, it was just ridiculously easy. There was a center in Moose Jaw that was even mm. easier yeah. for many years. And there were records um, with Moose Jaw bowler names on them that uh, will rarely be broken if they are broken. Because, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, crazy. Right. So I don't believe in, I believe in promoting the sport and improving uh, aspects of the game, but not at the detriment of taking away the challenge. Right. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think the idea of putting a bottom on the pin helped the recreational bowler and it didn't cause any spread between the elite bowlers and the people that go on the tour. Okay. Interesting fact on the tour, guys. I have only done this with the Regina's tournament, but the more qualifying shifts you have, the more likelihood that the people are going to qualify are going to be top level players, right? So using only the Regina tournament, on average, if you've never made it into their tournament, into the match play, into the top 32, you've never made it you have an 18% chance of making it. Mm. Your chances would improve if instead of four qualifying rounds or five or whatever it is, you only had two. So that makes everybody, sense. everybody can have a bad day, right? Yeah. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I've only got a few more within the uh, the the personal questions. Uh, one, uh, when you were back in your prime, uh, was there a challenge match that or a person that you would have really liked to have played that that maybe you didn't get a chance to? Um, no, it's somebody mentioned. I can't remember who on the podcast. Somebody mentioned wanting to play Stan Black. Okay, I got a kick out of playing a guy from Winnipeg by the name of Bob King. Bob King was a phenomenal talent, very good talent, right? But he was known apparently for head games. And I got a kick out of he and Stan Black because I would goof off with them, right? I'd tell Stan Black, I'd go over to Stan Black and talk about Fred, my bowling ball with him, right? <laughs> Just for kicks. Um, Bob King, uh, I, he was, he is such an incredible bowler, but he would do things I would notice watching that subtly he was trying to distract people. And I thought, that's funny. That is just funny because, <laughs> you know, you're so talented. Anyway, um, so I remember those two people having played them um, and having a chuckle inside myself seeing it, but I would never take away their credit credentials as a player. 
they were very good, very talented players in their home areas. And uh, Stan Black was a unique character, right, as well. But yeah. um, talented person, right? Doug Mosdell, just such a talented person. Um, you asked what was the question? <laughs> if, if there was one player that you would uh, like to have a challenge match with that you didn't have a chance, uh, I would like to present. Doesn't matter. I would like to have played Frank Levine. Yeah, yeah. I bowled in tournaments with him um, in the seventies. Holy mackerel, am I old? <laughs> no, five. I'm not pretty good though. Anyway. <laughs> Um, those are my three fakes left. <laughs> um, I would like to have played Frank Levine. Watching Frank Levine was like watching a machine. I was nowhere ever in my career, ever, even during my practice sessions when I could feel just so, so totally engrossed by my practice. I don't think there was ever more than a short slice of time where I would have been in the Frank Levine level of play. He was phenomenal. People will sometimes take a cut at him because he didn't play well in all bowling centers. Well, not everybody does. Yeah. He was still one of the most phenomenal players out there. You know, just one of played well in the autumn open. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he struggled more often when he came to the Rose Bowl at Bonnie Doom. Um, anyway. Frank. No, good choice. All right, I got two more. Um, and this, I think I'm, I'm going to put it out there to, to the crowd at some point, too. Uh, but uh, what's a uh, obscure or kind of unique personal achievement that most may not know about you? <laughs> most obscure? Well... The most obscure fact that most of the viewing audience and all of your friends don't know <laughs> is that when I was 20, <laughs> I was a real jerk. I was a class bum. I was horrible. I was, I was the king of jerks. I did things that were horrible. I should have been kicked out of tournaments many times. Many times I should have. As a YBC bowler, I bowled only in singles. All my YBC career that I can recall, YBC started when I was nine in Canada. And in all my YBC, I only played singles. And I always yeah. made it to provincial and I never made it to a national. I didn't always make it to provincial, but I was always in singles. And I did some very horrendous things towards my competitors that I should have been kicked out of. I did horrendous things in league play. In YBC league. Oh, goodness. Should have been kicked out. Sometimes I got a lecture, but I'm always back out there again. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's really good for people to know though. I mean, A, it's shown obviously like your own personal growth throughout your life. Um, and here you are going from like this person that you're describing when you were 20 to becoming one of the, probably the most influential person in a lot of our bowling careers, um, just with what you've done for the game and giving back in that aspect. So um, 
I, th I think that's a, that's a great thing for you to share. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I had a lot of issues back then. <laughs> Tom, Tom, I earned those issues. <laughs> Tom, what, what, what made you change, Tom? Like, what was, was there a specific reason why you changed or a, a moment that made you want to change? You know what? Um, I started doing something that in 1978, I started doing for-profit clinics, for-profit instruction. Al Hunter, again, uh, probably my second dad, really. My dad died when I was, basically when I was 13. And um, he said, 1978, he said, Tom, I need you to do two things, or I want you to do two things. One, I want you to write a book. So by 1980, Technique Bowling came out. And two, I want you to start doing instructing, but I want you to be paid for it. So I became the first professional instructor, basically someone being paid. And that's the way it's always been maintained ever since. I don't instruct without payment or it's rare without. I believe in the professionalism of coaching. Um, it also creates accountability as well. Yes, it does. And I believe when I did my clinics, they got a, like the bowling school, they got a post, a pre and a post assessment, written copy, a videotape as well. And uh, anyway, in 1980, I published the book and I was now touring the province doing these clinics. And a very good friend of mine at the time, Greg Cook, uh, Yorkton Bull Arena, he had me come out and do a clinic with some of his recreational bowlers because he couldn't get any of his better bowlers to come and play because of my reputation. Gentlemen, my reputation was horrible. Um, you know, you can ask uh, some of the older bowlers from Regina and they'll say, whew, absolutely horrible. <laughs> you know, it's just really bizarre. Anyway, um, he said, you're not gonna get the respect of your peers until you change. And you know what? Everything I'd done on the lane, all the idiotic, stupid things I did to get into your head and mix you up and give myself an advantage and literally prevent you from getting a ball down the lane sometimes um, when you wanted to, um, were well within my control. When Greg made that plea to me, I stopped. Almost on a dime. Almost on a dime, those behaviors went away. Sometimes they would trickle back, but then I would curb them right away. Because to me, what was far more important was the helping I could do. I really, truly loved helping people. And if my behaviors were going to get in the way of that, then I needed to change. So. You know, he's my, he was one of my best friends. I haven't seen him in decades. Um, but um, anyway, I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, major major kudos for that. that. That's incredible. And, and uh, I'd say last but probably most important, uh, at this point of your career, you've seen pretty much everything and you're, you're involved in so much. Uh, what does the sport need to take the next step? What what uh, 
what can we help with? What can uh, the, the general uh, five pin uh, public help with? Well, you know what? I don't think they're giant steps. I don't think we can take a giant step. I think it would be a good idea. And maybe, maybe your committee has done this already, sat down and written down goals about things you'd like to tackle and improve on, right? Add on in your promotion. And uh, much like the bowling school, it's baby steps, right? The first year the bowling school was around, we had 56 competitors in 1986. And they were all local Saskatchewan people. It took eight years before we had anybody from Alberta, I think, seven or eight, something like that, uh, before we started getting any influx of people from outside of our province. And uh, it's all about baby steps, right? But have a big plan, have that five-year plan and sort out the things you can do, the business plan you can do to chisel away at what they are. But don't make it things that I tell you to do. Make it the list that you think you should do because that will be the list that you're motivated to do. Um, mm -hmm. My ideas um, are my ideas, and some of them will come to fruition. I think my most recent one is the idea of creating a mentorship group. And um, I think there's a lot of potential for that. Uh, it's, however, that's my idea. And people can piggyback on it and do it in their communities. But ultimately, I believe the best way the sport's going to progress is people like you who are really, truly passionate about what you're doing and have, have convinced and shown that you are indeed passionate about it. Sit down as a committee. You probably have, as I said, brainstorm the things you want to do in the next five years and lay out the baby steps to help you get there, right? I think, Carrie, I mentioned to you that uh, long ago, two years ago, we had a conversation, and I said something about getting on uh, Dragon's Den. I thought we needed to figure out a way to get the sport on Dragon's Den. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Because the exposure for everybody that's gone on Dragon's Den, whether they get um, chosen or not is huge. It's, it's phenomenal. You know? People, uh, they follow, they track people on that show. Anyway, um, that's not a venue for me to go through. <laughs> um, I threw that out to Carrie, but that's like a giant step, right? Yeah, is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you need the baby step to go along before there. Mm -hmm. and, um, I think I can shut up on that. <laughs> I, 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 I do um, have a. Can I have a question for each of you? Sure. Sure. Of course. Okay. Um, tell me, you know, it's, I'm going to fall trap here. I'm going to fall in the trap of saying, tell me one thing. All right. Uh, you have 10 words or less. Tell me, where are you going to be? What's going to be different in 15 years? I, I, can, do it in, I can do it in one word, retired. 
So does that mean you're going to be out of board? Uh, I, I would hope to be still involved. Okay. Um, so 15 years from now, Adam, when you're done bowling, mm -hmm. what will you be doing with bowling? I, I think that path will be very much determined by my son's soccer. Whether my involvement is based on bowling or soccer or both, etc. Um, I, I I still put myself out there more on the adult side for mentoring than than the youth. Uh, I would like to get back into the youth side, but uh, just time commitments right now is is very very difficult. But yeah, I'd love to still be involved. Being a family is busy, right? Yeah, very. So it should be, Tim. Okay, so where where am I going to be in El Presidente? Where am I going? Where am I going to be in fifteen years, or where like bowling is going to be in fifteen years? Where are you? Your part going to be in that fifteen years? In that well, 15 years. What's your? I I, your I I well, first of all, we should have had the ten word rule for Tom a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think I probably will just be involved. I probably might not be playing. That's I've said that a long time ago. I said I'm, I'm like I wouldn't want to play for a long time. Um, I I I just think you know honestly it probably. Oh, thanks, Robert. I'll be married and divorced. Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I can I can only follow your footsteps, buddy. Uh, so I I think I think I'd probably just be at, at a center, uh, working it and and be involved that way. I don't I don't know if I'd be anywhere else. Just that ten words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> None of those words were um first though. Yeah, um, I think. I, I'll be more involved with the coaching side, and I I hope I'm still competitive at that time. Uh, I I don't see – I'm the opposite of Tim. I, I don't see myself ever really giving the game up. Um, there's definitely lots of times where I'm frustrated, but, I mean, it's there, – there's – yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping in 15 years that I'll still be uh, relatively, you know, competitive, but probably uh, – probably go down the path that Lynn went down, you know, competitive until and coaching in between. And then when, you know, the competitive work goes away, be more coaching sort of thing. So, uh, and then, you know, um, maybe, maybe do some more things on the production side of things. In 15 years, I'll get you back at the bowling school. All right. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I need to get back. I do. I 100%. I, I need to get back. Okay. Carrie. Um, pretty much in the same position I think I am now, um, promoting five pin media and the, hopefully a bigger tour and just growing that. I think that's, that's my objective on, in this sport and the clarity of that. Very good. Yeah. Gentlemen, it's been a slice. Thank you very much. Are we done? <laughs> Do you want to be done? Do you want to be done or not? Are we? One question a few people are asking, Tom, is uh, where can they buy your books? Are they, they for sale? They're, they're, they're not available. I have some Technique Bowling books still in a box. I think about 20 maybe. Um, and I 
distribute them very gingerly. They're like, uh, what, 40 years old. They're yellow. (laughs) 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 The Lane Logic one, I have one copy, which is obviously my copy, and that's it. And with Lane Logic, I don't have any um, digital templates for it, which is weird because it was once upon a time digital. But anyway, um, I only have the one copy. The book I'm currently in the process of putting together, uh, right now the chapter on coaching is 61 pages long. The chapter on practice is 21 pages long. The chapter on um, psychology of goals and motivation is 20-some pages long. The whole thing, the six chapters, the whole thing is well over 200 pages. So I'm reconsidering how that would even play out in distributing it. Maybe it's going to be better to distribute it chapter by chapter instead of as one massive book because the cost of printing a 200-page book would be crazy, right? Mm -hmm. I have no idea why I said that. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a good strategy. Sit there and tell everybody it's going to cost a ton to make these, (laughs) and then that way you can charge whatever you want and no one will know the difference. Well, it cost you a dollar. But ways away from that. Is is there a way we can help you sell those on a different platform? Like whether I mean it's just you. I mean I don't know how you want to go ahead. I know they're gonna be in high demand when you talk about it, right? And, and when you bring it out, um, I know you can probably do a digital copy. That people will be all over that too. But it might be another way where you can save your printing costs. But or maybe or maybe the tour just throws it up on their store and we can help you out with that. <laughs> I don't. I like, I like how Tim's is jumping all over selling your book, Tom. I'm not sure about your profit margins here, but Tim's all over it. I, 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 I don't care about his. I think it's a great thing. We don't have that in bowling, right? And you know, he's, I think it's great to have it, and the more people have it, the better, right? Yep, for sure. That is something for Tom to discuss with the powers that be, yeah. not on a live stream. Oh, here you <laughs> Who would those powers that be be? Anyway, I, I am, uh, I'm a little ways away from being at the print stage. I've got two chapters that I think are ready to go for that out of the six. And I'm starting the, to re-edit the one on stress management, which is 30 or 40 pages long right now. And I'm actually reconsidering just doing a rewrite of it. So... You have to really make sure that you're not too wordy, that you just get to the point, right? That's right. What you need to do. But I use a lot of storytelling in my book. In each chapter, there's a lot of storytelling that goes on. So um, consequently, it gets wordy, but it gets the point across, right? It, It drives the point across. One of the books I, one of the older books I like to read and reference is a book called Encouraging the Heart. A lot of the books that I read are business management books and teamwork books and that sort of thing. And they have a lot of wisdom that can be imparted in athletics as well as 
in just personal lifestyle, right? Anyway. Yeah. Again, I have no idea why I said all that. Looking, <laughs> looking forward to the release. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, um, before we let you go here, Tom, we, we do have some commitments to uh, follow up here with. We did promise four T-shirts for uh, distribution okay. to, uh, to the people in the chat here. So we'll just get Dexter to uh, roll through that, and uh, we can find out who the winners are. All right. Is it up there? Uh, I can add it. Oh, There you go. Okay. Here we go. Uh, minimum five on the dice rolls. Five it is. Top four carry, or are we going to do this four times? Uh, no, let's just do two, top four. All right, here we go. So these were all the people I caught, uh, commenting. Gino popped up just a minute late. <laughs> all right, final all right, round. He, he doesn't need one. Let's see our top four. Scott Barber, Rhonda Sean, Rodney Nitz, and Raymond Marco. Congratulations. Awesome. Can you copy those four names and send them to me in private chat there? Sure. I, yeah. guess, I guess I could do that for you. Perfect. Carrie, how big are the shirts? Do they fit Scott? <laughs> it might It might cost uh, Shelby a little extra in shipping. But... <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. Carrie, yes, of course. What do, what's, what do you do to make a living, Carrie? Me, I'm a, I work at an accounting firm. Okay, so you're an accountant by profession. Mm -hmm. Adam, what do you do? Uh, inside sales, oil and gas. In oil and gas. So is that looking a lot different these days? Uh, thankfully, I'm in aftermarket, so there's been a bit of a downturn, but uh, everybody's still maintaining. So, th okay. thankfully, we're we're not nearly uh, hit as hard as, as most. And Tim and Dexter, the bowling uh, center is not open yet. No, we're uh, we're bums. Yeah. And do you know <laughs> when that's going to happen yet? Is there any timeline? No? August. August. Yeah. And, uh, we're, we're stage three at the moment. There's talk that that might change, but I actually got an email back from from uh, the Alberta government today confirming we are in stage three still. Um, so and what stage are you at now? One. So there's only three stages for us. Stage two uh, commences on June the 19th at the earliest, um, depending on how well the province is doing, and then stage three after that. So if they follow their pattern... My guess would be end of July, August first, if uh, yeah. it, if we stay in stage three. Yeah, that's um, that's just when you're in your own business. That's it's got to be so difficult. Yeah, and, and you know what? Uh, we've always said in the bowling alley, there's always something to do. And after uh, two and a half months of this, um, it's getting harder to say that. <laughs> so, so consequently, I did some work for the WCBT, working on some stat stuff, and I did some stuff for you today too, uh, collecting some data. And uh, yeah, all right, got to spend okay. some time somehow. Tim and Dexter, I hope things uh, open the doors sooner than later. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. I would really like to come out there and throw a ball or two. Yes, please do. I was going to say you were the. I think you were the first person 
that I ever had a side bet with at a at a tour event ever. Oh really? You were, you were betting me quarters my first TPC. Oh right. <laughs> yeah. 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 How many once, a, once again, Five Pin Universe doesn't endorse gambling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but by the time you paid your accountants, you probably didn't have much money left, right, Gary? That's right. That's, that's probably true, yeah. <laughs> All right, Tom. Um, you're more than welcome to stay on the line here for a bit. We're just going to run our commercials and end this podcast. Once again, thanks to everybody in the chat. Um, we can't thank Tom enough and the rest of the podcast crew. Um, spending their time with us. I'd like to thank everybody that came to join in. Thank you very much for helping make my day. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. This was absolutely fantastic. Wow, incredible. Thank you.